Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. My name is Craig Brown, as you heard, and I am privileged and honored to be with you this morning for worship. I want to welcome all of you that are joining online today. So glad that you're with us, whether you're watching us live or watching later. We hope that uh, today's service and sermon will be uplifting for your life and that will help you be able to serve and to love God in the way that you're called to as well. So I'm glad to be here, and I'm from Sacramento. That's where I live, and that's where I'll be going today, I'm heading home after worship is over, and from the California-Nevada Annual Conference, which as soon as you cross into Kern County, you're in my territory. And so uh, our annual conference is the entire Central Valley, all of the northern half of California, and all of northern Nevada. So we get around. We travel a bit in the annual conference I serve. But before that, I was a member of this annual conference, and in 2018, I had finished serving San Diego First United Methodist and moved to the position I'm in now. So I know this annual conference well. I used to serve the church in Thousand Oaks, in Mission Viejo, in Orange County, in Dana Point. So this is home. Even though that's home, this is home. And so I know uh, my way around here just a little bit. Um, I've been to your church before. I've slept at your church many times. Back in the late 1990s, I used to be the spiritual director for the Channel Islands Chrysalis community, and we used to hold our Chrysalis weekends here at this church. So I slept in your fellowship hall, and I'm 53 years old. I don't sleep in fellowship halls anymore. It's I, I can get down to the floor. Not sure I'll get back up. Gravity is tough that way. You're in the middle of a series of messages this summer called Summer Stories, and they're about the parables of Jesus. And so as I begin the message this morning, I want you to practice something with me that we're going to do several times through the sermon today, and I uh, hope you'll understand by the time we get to the end, it's significant. So what I'd like you to do first is take a deep, deep breath in, as deep as you can take it, and then exhale. Let's try one more time. Breathe in deeply, and then exhale. Good. I'm going to ask you to do that a few times through the sermon today as we explore how we might be called to live and to love God through the story that is this parable. Every parable is filled with some problems and some promise. And I know Reverend Nicole, who has spent um, a good amount of time with you over the last uh, few weeks helping you understand how parables work, has covered some of this. I just want to say a couple things real quick, and then I'm going to move on. One of the problems with parables has to do with their place or their context. You remember, Jesus told these stories that meant something very important to people who lived 2,000 years ago in an agrarian society in a Middle Eastern culture. So anyone here from that culture? Okay, maybe not a lot. So when we're talking about a parable, there's always like this um, cultural translation work we have to do. We have to understand what it meant to the people that Jesus explained the story to the first time so we can figure out what it means for us. The second problem with parables has to do with what I would call the players in the parable. That these stories are often told with certain characters in them, like the parable I'll read for you in a moment has a, a host of a great feast or party that has a servant and has people who are invited. So one of the other problems in a parable is to try to play a matching game. Who do those people represent? Who do these characters connect to or connect with? And that's always a struggle when we're reading a parable to understand, so 
who's, who's here? Who are these people, and how do they represent something for us? The promise of a parable is this, is that parables deliver hard truth in a very common sense sort of form. Now, hard truth doesn't necessarily mean it's like a criticism. Sometimes it can certainly mean that. But other hard truths are sometimes affirmations, things we need to hear about who we are, about who God has made us to be. And sometimes those are hard to hear. And so there are folks that really sometimes struggle to hear hard truth directly, like if you just tell them the hard truth. So sometimes framing it in a story or putting it in a narrative like this helps people to hear something they wouldn't be able to hear otherwise. And that's the case with this parable today. This parable contains a very hard truth in it, and we're going to explore what it means and see how we can apply it and use it in our own lives and in our own community. But before we do that, I want you to breathe in deeply and breathe out. And I'm going to read this parable to you. I got it here on my phone. This is from the Gospel of Luke, beginning at the 15th verse of the 14th chapter. So if you want to follow along on your phone or device, you want to follow along with your Bible, feel free to. The parable goes like this. So one of the dinner guests, let me say, Jesus told this story about dinner while he's at dinner. All right, so one of the dinner guests where Jesus is, on hearing this said to him, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus said to him, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. And at the time of the dinner, he sent a slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a piece of land and I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I've just been married and therefore I cannot come. So the slave returned and reported this to his master. The owner of the house then became angry and said to the slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town, and you bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Sir, what you've ordered has been done, and there's still room. Then the master said to the slave, Go out into the roads and lanes and compel people to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So let's stop for a moment and breathe in and breathe out. So here's what we need to know about this parable. If we want to understand the place, we want to understand the players, and we want to understand the promise, here's what we need to know. First of all, this is a formal party. So this is really about how you throw a formal party. And there are some clues in the parable that tell us this is a dinner party like no other dinner party. So how things worked in the ancient world is that if you had a lot of money and a lot of wealth and a lot of status, and you wanted to throw a feast, you would send written invitations out to people. Now, written invitations weren't easy to do because 2,000 years ago, they didn't have this. It's called paper. They didn't have this 2,000 years ago, and so what they did is they 
had a kind of parchment that they made together out of woven fibers of the papyrus plant. So you can imagine someone sitting with wet little fibers, weaving them together, and then you would get a what we would describe as a sheet of paper, and on that you would be able to write. Sounds cheap, doesn't it? Can you imagine if every sheet of paper was handmade? That's exactly what it was like in the ancient world. Handmade papyrus. So to send written invitations didn't come cheap. And written invitations were sent well in advance of when the event was going to be. Kind of like how we invite people to come to a wedding in our culture. We send the invitations out weeks and weeks in advance. Sometimes we even send something before then to tell people to hold the date, even though we may not have the invitations ready. And that's how this story works. There's this this host or this master of this household who invites people to come to dinner. He sends written invitations out. The invitations go, people respond. They say, yeah, we'll be there. They affirm their reply. Then what happens is on the day of the actual party, the dinner, a servant goes out and tells everyone who reserved their spot that the feast is ready. You see, when you receive the written invitation, it's perfectly acceptable to you for the ho- to say no to the host. It's perfectly acceptable. But if you say yes on the written invitation, and then the servant comes to tell you that the dinner is ready, you're now obligated to attend. The invitations that were sent didn't have time on them. They just had the date. So you had to wait until the servant came and said, all right, everything's ready. You can come now. Then everybody would go to the party. So here's how the story goes down. Servant goes out on the day of the party. Everything's ready. The meal is prepared and begins telling everybody who had reserved their space at the party that the feast is ready. What's the first one tell them? I bought a piece of land and I need to go look at it. Lame. And then it goes to the second person and says, okay, the feast is ready. Second person says, hi. You know what? Um, I'm kind of busy. I got these oxen and I need to test drive them. Lame. Gets to the third one and the person says, I just got married and I'm having a party. Lame. So you see, the three excuses that are offered by the people who can't come are lame. They make no sense at all. All of these people would have known ahead of time that there was a party they had been invited to and they would not have obligated themselves It was not a cultural insult to turn down the written invitation. It is the highest insult to agree to attend something and to no-show. That's the highest of insults. So you can see why the host of this dinner party is angry. That the invitation list that was created of all the people who were invited, they've all said no. So now the invitation list has to change. And so what's the master tell the servant to go do? I want you to go out and I want you to go find people on the street. I want you to find the poor, beggars, lame, blind people, everybody. Notice the people that get invited, people who normally never get invited to come to a party. That's who gets invited. So all of these people show up. The servant says, okay, I brought all those people in, but the place isn't full yet. And then the master says, I want you to go out to the highways and byways. It literally says in the Greek language of the New Testament, I want you to go out to the streets and the bushes and find people and bring them in. Because the host of the party is not going to settle for anything less than a full party. It's more important that the party is full than who attends it. 
It's more important that the party's full than who attends it. You see, this host is persistent, isn't he? He's going to make sure that the party is packed with people. Now, let me give you a little context to help. Remember I said when I started reading the scripture passage that Jesus told this story at a dinner party. So do you see the irony here? It's like he's telling a story about a dinner party at a dinner party. And the dinner party Jesus is attending is described in Luke 14. He's at a party at a wealthy Pharisee's house. A Pharisee is a religious leader in the Jewish community who would be um, uh, commonly referred to today as a rabbi, but was a little different, that the Pharisee had responsibility for uh, tutoring or uh, organizing a group of followers that kind of uh, were their, their students, if you will. And so Jesus is attending a dinner at a wealthy person's home. And while he's attending the dinner, there's a conversation that goes on before this parable where all of the very important and significant people sitting around the table are all talking about how important they are and huffing and puffing about how great it is to be at that table. And they get to a point in the conversation where one of them says, Oh, Jesus, how great it will be one day when we can all share this feast in heaven. And then Jesus tells this parable. What's it like to go to a dinner party where one of the guests who's there decides it's the right time to quietly insult the host? That's what this parable is describing. It's an insult to the host. You see, all of those religious leaders thought they were entitled to the feast that was going to come in eternity. And Jesus is telling them in this parable, hold on a second. So what the parable is trying to tell us is something very important. That Jesus saying that, well, in this parable, the host, the one inviting people, that's God. And God has sent written invitations. God has sent it all out, and everyone's reserved. And then Jesus talks about the servant who goes out to tell people that the feast is ready. The servant is Jesus, who's now going out and proclaiming the message that the feast is ready. And when Jesus goes to the religious and important people, all the upper echelons of religious power, what do they come up with when they engage with Jesus the very first time? They find out that they don't like him very much. And so then they have excuses about, you know, why Jesus is wrong, why Jesus is this, why Jesus is that. And so Jesus begins doing his ministry with the poor, the lost, the blind, the beggar. You see how it works? Jesus is basically telling his hosts, you all think you're entitled to this meal. And what I'm telling you is that when I came in your midst, you missed it. They're looking forward to a meal that's going to happen in heaven one day with God. And what they have lost sight of completely is that the one who will host that meal one day in kingdom of heaven with God is sitting at the table with them right now. And they're blind to it. They can't even see it. Francois Bolvan, who's a, a scholar on the New Testament, he says this about when Jesus exposes these religious leaders for what they are, he says, what's exposed and then condemned is the orientation that a lack, that, that the desire takes on within them, that they're desiring this thing in heaven. And that is the lack of respect for true priorities. They've been so fixated on other things, they've lost the priorities sitting right in front of them. The most important things, even Jesus in their midst. So take a deep breath in. Deep breath, exhale. 
There's a couple takeaways for us from this parable I want to talk about very quickly. The first takeaway is this, is that our work is drawing and sending. That our work is drawing and sending. One of my favorite theologians of the 20th century is a, um, an Anglican bishop. His name is Leslie Newbegin. And here's what Newbegin has to say about drawing and sending. He says, the church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave. That's the Pharisees. But to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. How's that? Now we just have to get the sound balanced so I don't rupture all of your eardrums. Excellent. Very good. Okay. I'm going to turn this one off to make sure it doesn't interfere with where we're going. Newbegin uses this word, words to describe what he's talking about. That the church has a role of drawing people and sending people. That's what it does. It lives in this rhythm of drawing and sending and you kind of get that in this parable. There's this way in which the drawing and the sending happens. So, for example, let me, let me illustrate. In verse 21, when the first set of invitees turn down their invitation, it says in the text that the master told the servant to go bring in people from the, what's it say? Go out into the roads and lanes, right? To bring in. In verse 23, there's a stronger word in the language this is written in to describe this drawing. It's the word compel. You can see it there on the sign on the wall. And compel people. One, to draw in or bring in. An even stronger word is to compel. How many people like being compelled to do things? Not a lot. That's how strong the word is. The, the person hosting this party is compelling people to come and to enjoy it. And in the same way, in this very same parable, the word to go, to send, occurs four times. So what this parable is describing is this rhythm of drawing and sending. Drawing and sending. And that's what our work is. Our work is one of drawing and sending. And this is what it means to be a missional church. That we actually become a church that has an eye toward the people not here yet. We have an eye to the people not here yet. In the very next chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus is going to tell three parables. He's going to tell one parable about a shepherd who had 100 sheep and lost one of them. And so left the 99 sheep in the open field to go find the one that's lost. And then Jesus tells another story about a woman who had a coin in her house and she lost the coin. And so she emptied her entire house out so she could find the coin and then she found it. Now, how many of you, if you lost your car keys in your house, would empty the entire contents of your house into the street to find your car keys? That's how desperate this woman is in the story. And then the final story in Luke 15 is about a son who walks up to his father, looks him in the eye, and says, Give me half my inheritance, and I wish you were dead. And the father gives him his inheritance. The son goes off. He blows it and wastes it in his life, and he comes home begging forgiveness from his father. The father forgives him, but the parable is actually not about that. The parable is about the older son who witnesses how merciful and graceful that his father was and became angry and irate about it. 
How much does God value lost things? They have infinite value to God. And so when we read the parable, and it's about how these people who were invited didn't come, so go out and find the people. Go get them. Do whatever it takes. You see, it's an eye toward the people that aren't here yet. This is what it means to be a missional church, that the church actually has a form of breath to it. It's drawing and sending. So let's practice. Let's breathe in, nice and deep, and breathe out. There's a second takeaway that's important for us. God has, is, and will continue to invite. See, the core value here is that in this parable, the feast will be full. And that's more important than who is actually at the feast. I want you to notice the insistence of the master in the parable. Go and bring. Go and compel. Draw, send. That's the cycle. See, God's throwing a party, and it's going to be full. And we can do nothing to change that. So let that settle for a minute. God is throwing a party, and it's going to be full, and there's nothing we can do to change that. For me, that's a remarkable truth of this parable, that the value of the party being full far outweighs who actually attends. So when we try as religious people to get in the work of figuring out who's in and who's out, and who's good and who's bad and who's right and who's wrong, you see we're kind of in the wrong department when we're dealing with that. You know, I used to preach to my congregations for years and years and years, and I would tell them the same thing all the time. We're in sales. We are not in management. We're, our job is to represent the love of God and the love of Christ in the world and invite people to experience Jesus Christ deeply and fully in his transforming power in his life so that they can be sent into the world as agents of his love and grace. Deciding who qualifies for that, yeah, that's not our department. That happens, but that's not our business. That's God's business. God's in management. We're in sales. We're in sales. Leslie Newbegin says it this way. The mission is not ours, but God's. There's a lot of freedom here for us, friends, in this, in that we're not responsible for what other people decide to do. We're not responsible for it. We're responsible for ourselves and how we engage with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not responsible for how our neighbor next door does. Our job, though, is to continually offer and reflect the love of God to everyone, including our neighbor next door. Do you see the good news here? There's a party. We're at it, and we're charged with welcoming others. The issue here is whether we're going to be engaged in inviting people or not. So I want you to breathe again deeply. In and exhale out. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So how do we do that? How do we take this parable and bring it to life? There's two quick action steps I want to share with you. The first action step is this. Decide where you're going to be sent this week. And if you don't know where it is, how you'll discover it. The days in which 
as churches, we used to be able to say, well, if we build it, they will come. It's like Field of Dreams, the old movie from the 80s. That's not true anymore. It's not working that well anymore. We build stuff, people, what, still don't come. So what it requires is for us to think about our hospitality in a different way. To say, what does it mean to not just be hospitable when people come to our door, but what does it mean to be out extending the hospitality of God to others, the welcome of God? So where are you going to be sent this week? You see, hospitality is actually going to the highways and byways. It's being a good host. That's what it means to be an apostle. So how will you do that? How will you do that at the grocery store? How are you going to do that at the Starbucks? How are you going to do that at the library? How are you going to do that at your office? How are you going to do that walking past a stranger on the street? How will you do that on purpose? How will you do it by accident? How will you do it incidentally? How will you do it very purposefully? Because the reality is, is as soon as we walk out these doors, we're being sent to do that work. That's, take, that's action step number one. So let's breathe in and breathe out. Action step number two. Make a deeper commitment to Valencia United Methodist Church as a place that draws people. You have a fantastic congregation, a healthy church in many ways. So there's lots of reasons why this church can draw people. Draw people for activities, draw people for engagement, draw people to serve, draw people for justice making, draw people in for all those things. How can you make a deeper commitment to that, let's say by the end of summer? Take some weeks to think about how can I commit to our church in a deeper way to be a church that draws people? The reality that we're dealing with today, my friends, is that we live in a so-called post-pandemic world. We can tell because you're all wearing masks again. Sarcasm is included in my sermons free of charge. I don't know if we'll ever get to a post-pandemic world. The reality that we're facing in pandemic now is that as human beings, we're trying to figure out how to be around each other again. And what we typically do is we spend most of our time colliding into each other. So it's like when you walk up to somebody, do I shake their hand? Do I give them the fist bump? Do I give them the elbow bump? Do I give them the air high five? How do I engage with a person? If things like that are complicated, Imagine how much more complicated and difficult the significant things we do with other human beings are. Striking up a conversation with a stranger, inviting someone in your community to come to the church. You see, those are really complicated now in this post-pandemic world. So as you think about making that deeper commitment, just remember that we're all out here in the world bouncing around off of each other because we were not sure how to interact anymore. Extend hospitality and grace in every one of those moments, and you'll be surprised what God does. How will you do it in online spaces? How will you do it physically when you're present with others? How will you do it accidentally? How will you do it incidentally? How will you be about the work of drawing and sending people? So I want you to take another deep breath in and exhale. If there's something we've learned about COVID, which is many things we've learned, is that when people stop doing that very thing, what happens to them? They die. And even our best attempts to keep people alive on ventilators and other forms of medical equipment sometimes fail us. People just stop breathing. 
from the standpoint of our physiology, when we stop breathing, we die. The same is true spiritually for the church, that the church has a breath to it, and its breath is drawing and sending. And when a church stops breathing, it dies. And its breath is the breath of drawing and sending, drawing and sending, just like this feast. The feast will be full. Our choice is how we're going to be a part of that. And so, even as we breathe, still in the sanctuary, be mindful that your church has breath too. And that every one of us has a place in the drawing and the sending work of God. For there's no better work to do. Because God's breath, what do we learn in Genesis? Is life to us. Let's pray.